Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, brought to you by FilmDivider.com. I'm Joe Cunningham and joining me as always to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Seb Patrick and James Hunt. We'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news before launching into our spoiler-filled discussion of John Favreau's 2010 film Iron Man 2. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seb and James to explain the comic book concept as a movie fan, I just don't understand. And this week, guys, so I've been reading some of the uh, all-new, all-different Marvel titles, um, and I read the first issue of Nova, um, and I didn't understand much of it because I don't know who Nova is, and there seems to be two Novas, and there's the Nova core, right? So explain all of that to me because I've, I've, I've Nova idea what's going on. <laughs> Do you know, this is a bit of a spoiler for later, but the comic I've chosen actually has Nova in it to recommend you this Ooh. week. So hopefully oh, you'll... It's as if we plan it ahead. <laughs> yeah, hopefully you'll have a slightly better understanding. Uh, but we, we should point out to the listeners, if anyone doesn't know, I don't tell you what this thing you're going to explain to me is. I like to keep you on your toes. I like <laughs> to get you to, um, to really dive into your comics knowledge. So uh, yeah, we definitely didn't plan that. Yeah, because if it was planned, I could have just not even started recording yet and just sat there and listened for the next few minutes. Cause... Do you need Nova explaining to you as well, Seb? <laughs> I don't need it explaining. I just have nothing to say about it. <laughs> I mean... James, the floor yeah, is yours. Like, I would say the simple version is he's Green Lantern with the serial numbers filed off. Like, he's basically... <laughs> like, they pick someone to be the Nova for a particular planet and then the Nova Corps sort of organise, you know, organise them, operate Novas as an intergalactic police force. I mean, you saw them in Guardians, so you kind of know that that concept, Yeah, basically. but I guess, I guess from that, I kind of just assumed that they were, like, the... They were the police for that planet. I didn't realise that they were a whole intergalactic thing. Yeah, no, I mean, or, it's or like... At least that's, that area that's their of base, is kind of... Yeah, Xandar like yeah, Zandar is their base. That's their base, and there's a Nova for every planet or whatever. And in this case... I think the current Nova is Sam Alexander and his father was a Nova, but they were part of like some kind of secret forces Nova, which is why there was a different Nova called Rich Rider, who's the one in the comic that I'm going to recommend you. So there, right. you know, there are at least three Earth Novas. The problem with the recent version of Nova is that he was created by and primarily appeared in comics written by Jeff Loeb. 
and James and I don't tend to buy or read comics by Jeff Loeb. <laughs> so well, this, not recent this ones. Is the, this is the Sam, <laughs> yeah. Sam Alexander version. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because he's, he's I, the one in the I, cartoons I th- and stuff at the moment. Right. Well, I felt I needed to get my head around him because he was also in the new Avengers um, meeting Kamala Khan. And I was surprised that, like, they were set up as kind of flirting with each other. And I didn't realize to begin with that Nova was a teenager. I thought he was a fully grown man. <laughs> and I know that people have The most kept... famous version was. But... Yes, because I, I know that people have kept saying they expected Nova to eventually show up in Guardians of the Galaxy and that he was potentially a candidate to be Star-Lord's dad. So this current Nova is a newish version and the kind of... So this is is this newish version... The old guy is like Hal Jordan and this new guy is like Jon Stewart, kind of. Kyle Rayner. Well, I thought, I thought you were going to say Kyle Rayner, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, mean... I don't I don't have enough green lines and knowledge to remember <laughs> the other names. <laughs> yeah, that's basically the setup. Like, the old one died, he got stuck in the cancerverse or something, and now... Sam Alexander's the new Nova. Like that, it's as simple as that. He's just he's taken over the identity. And are the interesting are the Novas interesting? The Earthbound Novas? Absolutely not. <laughs> if we ever get um, Al Kennedy on as a guest again, ask him about Nova um, because he's a fan of both Nova and the series New Warriors, which was the team book that Nova predominantly appeared in. in was it eighties, James, or nineties? <laughs> yeah, mid nineties. New Warriors, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that makes sense. The the Green Lantern thing is definitely very helpful. That's, that's pretty that's much a good yeah. comparison to have. <laughs> uh, let's move on now to taking a look at some of the comic book, movie, and TV news um, from the past like month, basically. That since since we last did one of these podcasts. Okay. Um, so we're going to kick things off with um, something that is news and isn't news and basically this is a huge huge spoiler for Supergirl so if you're not watching Supergirl and you don't want to be you don't want to be spoiled um jump ahead um and we're, we're going to be talking um Batman versus Superman Civil War and X-Men Apocalypse trailers after this so you can come back for that um okay everyone who doesn't want to hear this has hopefully left um, on the most recent episode of Supergirl, I think probably one more episode will have aired in the US by the time this podcast is released. But on the most recent episode of Supergirl at the time of recording that aired in the UK and the US, we found out the real identity of Hank Henshaw. Now, in the comics, Hank Henshaw is, as Seb explained to us on an <laughs> earlier podcast, he Great was detail. Cyborg Superman. Yeah. Right? So... Basically, the idea here seems to have been that Hank Henshaw was a basically shorthand for this is a code name, this is not who this guy really is. And we've been seeing from very early on that he has red glowy eyes and powers that are not human. Now, I sat watching this episode knowing that there had been chatter on the internet that the character's identity had been revealed. Um, and I was going through all manner of characters trying to guess who it might be, whether he was going to be good, whether he was going to be evil, and genuinely, until the moment that the character is actually revealed on the screen, I was nowhere near close to being able to guess that Hank Henshaw was in fact playing Martian Manhunter. (laughs) Now, Martian Manhunter, I understand for some people, is a bit of a punchline, 
but is actually one of the founding members of the Justice League and probably the one of the biggest comic book characters who hasn't got anywhere near yes, a he screen has. before, right? Yes, he has. Oh, has he been in Smallville <laughs> or something? No, he's been, he was he was in uh, the 1997 Justice League TV movie. Right. Okay. But this is this is a character that has been vaguely just ignored. He is the big DC character that the movies haven't even hinted towards being involved in Justice League or getting yeah. his own movie, I mean, despite just, being a founder member of the Justice League. Well, the thing about him is I think he's probably... I think as a solo character, he's very rarely stood out. I mean, he's he has had solo books, and he's got one to tell you, there is one running at the moment, it's about six, six issues or so in, um, as part of DC's most recent relaunch, that has quite drastically reinvented him. And it's great, really, really good mm. series, and I actually recommend hopping on those issues. Um, it's really enjoyable, and uh, you don't need to know anything about the character previously to get into it. But in general, he's defined by being a part of teams, and specifically by being a part of the Justice League, because he is that constant. And it was sort so of... Is, would it be fair to compare him maybe to The Vision? Would this be akin to yeah. The Vision having I mean- <laughs> been introduced in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Yeah, I mean, the Vision is also very similar to Red Tornado, another DC character who's in a lot of Justice League comics. But, yeah, it's that kind of thing. It's sort of, he's a stalwart member of the team. <laughs> Sorry, you just reminded me, I was watching the episode of Supergirl with my girlfriend in which Red Tornado turns up, and she turned to me and went, <laughs> huh, shit Vision. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think this character does at least have, I think, some resonance for some people, probably because his standout appearances were in the late 80s in the Justice League International series. Um, And he was really sort of... He was a key part of a lot of the character humour of that series because they played up the... You know, he's a Martian and a bit of an outsider, and he had this obsession with Oreo cookies that was a sort of um, that has become quite a defining characteristic of him since then. Um, so there are those of us who kind of have, I think, you know, without ever being that desperate to read a Martian Manhunter comic, we have that affection for him, for him having been in a version of the Justice League that we're a fan of. And actually, I think that's probably true even of, you know, he was in the version, they weren't very good, but the Justice League Detroit that were before Justice League International, he was in that. He was kind of the only one who'd carried over from the original lineup. Um, so I think he's a perfect kind of character that, as you say, is not in danger of being used anywhere else in any significant fashion. Um, but who, if you're a if you're a DC fan, you're likely to go, oh, it's the Martian Manhunter. Oh, I quite like him. You know, um, I think the other reason why I think it's such a great um, reveal. I mean, I, I should stress I haven't seen the episode. I'm a few episodes behind, but I did read spoilers and saw pictures. Um, it all of a sudden. I wasn't really convinced why David Harewood was playing Hank Henshaw. He just didn't seem right for the character as you know him. But he's absolutely perfect casting for Martian Manhunter. Everything just clicks into place. It's like, oh, of course he's playing John Johns. That's just absolutely perfect casting. And the character, I have to say, the character clicks into place within the course of that episode. I think it was probably, once you get to it, I think the whole episode was my favourite of Supergirl so far. Um, the 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 kind of the ensemble is coming together. I don't know whether the rest of the world has got to this point as well, but I think Callista Flockhart is absolutely nailing her work on that show on consistently on a week to week basis. 
and there is a scene in the middle of the episode that cuts between Callista Flockhart delivering a speech and Supergirl delivering an inspiring monologue that is um, just the best thing the show has done and then it builds to this reveal of Martian Manhunter at the end. Really, I mean, I don't know anything about Martian Manhunter but the moment the reveal came, it was like, oh, that feels super ballsy for this TV show to be doing. And it seems really, really freeing that these movie, these TV shows right now aren't connected to the movie universe. And it's interesting because I think even 6, 12, 18, 24 months ago, you'd have been talking about it the other way around and saying, isn't it disappointing that DC can't find a way to, you know, get their shit together the mm. way that Marvel can? But in, I just... in a way, I think it's, it's benefiting shows like The Flash and Supergirl to have this freedom. I just love how quickly stuff happens as well. It's like this wasn't a reveal. They didn't wait the entire first season and then do it as the end of first season cliffhanger. This is what episode six, seven, hmm. um, and, and this bang, is what the Flash did as well. That's who did. Yeah, Flash was the same. It's it's interesting though because I I do think there isn't a good and a bad way to do this. I think Daredevil benefits from being part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, I, Jessica Jones seems less concerned with it. Um, I don't think Jessica Jones feels held back by being part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But I think I think many times Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has done. The kind of unspoken thing about Marvel's TV series, though, is that they're not actually connected to the movies. <laughs> no, like, but they are. But They are. They have the pretense kind of. of it, but they're not. And like, so it does hold them back to be unable to use characters in case they turn up in movies. And like, even to the extent of, oh, we've used this guy, but we've not really used him. Like, we've used Blizzard, but he's not really Blizzard. And we've used Nuke, but he's not really Nuke. It's a problem for them that they can't go as far as they would like to. But like I said, I think Daredevil benefits from being part of that wider universe to begin with. Um, but I, I just, yeah, I am thoroughly enjoying what Supergirl is doing. I kind of don't want it to be connected to The Flash anymore. I kind of wonder whether that is whether that is the same kind of idea that this should just be a Supergirl show you know, should be part of the wider Superman universe. And I would love to see the Flash and Supergirl on some level together on the screen because I like the actors and I think that their vibes would work well together. But this also feels like a Supergirl universe that doesn't need the complications of all that other stuff and it could just have fun I just think I just think corner. if they're going to do it it's got to be alternate universes because you know uh, Supergirl's world has Superman operating openly and famously and you would not have gone through four seasons of Arrow and one yeah. and a half seasons yeah, of Flash exactly without I mean. Superman ever getting mentioned so yeah, let's do we'll just do it with alternate universe. universes the precedent is there Earth <laughs> yeah. 2 it's all there it's waiting to be done so <laughs> and I personally speaking as someone who's Speaking of someone who's not watching Flash and Arrow, but is watching and enjoying <laughs> Supergirl, I'd be very happy for them to not get involved in crossovers. What? But you know, the Flash. I, don't, I don't. James. James. <laughs> yeah, I know. James. <laughs> we, we've been through James. This. James. Watch <laughs> the Flash. Arrow. I'll, yeah, I will take watch. or leave it, but watch the Flash. I'll but watch you know, the Flash. The, other thing. the moment I have, like, 48 hours suddenly appear in my <laughs> ridiculously packed life. Um, to bring things full circle and back to Supergirl and um, Martian Manhunter, I just from a personal level, I I was so elated when this happened because I mean part of the journey for me doing this podcast is 
discovering more about comics and more characters and I feel like there there are still some fairly major blind spots and any time I've seen Martian Manhunter mentioned I've just kind of gone I've no no idea what's going on there <laughs> so I'm quite excited to get to know that character a bit more and just to uh, this just reminding me that we did get a tweet um earlier this week from uh James Nelson on Twitter asking whether we had any more plans to review TV series and specifically the Flash um, and I think we would very much like to, at some point, get to The Flash and the 90s version of The Flash on this <laughs> podcast. Um, mm-hmm. It's just TV is slightly harder to uh, get to grips with and figure out the format. So we absolutely do have plans to do episodes focused on more TV shows in the future. I mean, I've got four series of Lois and Clark sat on my, uh, <laughs> sat on my shelf right now, uh, which we will absolutely get to at some point. Um, it's just figuring out the best way to do it, but yeah, as the podcast the goes on, them. <laughs> yeah, we will we will do that. Um, okay, um, we'll move on now to our second piece of news. Although we've, t- we've spent a lot of time <laughs> on Marshall Manhunter, um, this is this is basically just going to be a quick one. We can't really not address that in the last couple of weeks since we've recorded our last full episode. We got trailers for Captain America: Civil War, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. And X Men Apocalypse. So three, uh, the three big superhero movies of next year. Yeah, there's some other ones, but Gambit and Deadpool. Come on, um, yeah. <laughs> Gambit got pushed <laughs> back, didn't it? I'm pretty sure it got pushed yeah. back. And and there's also a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles two trailer that came out last week. Um, oh, I like the look but, of that, even though I've not seen the first one. <laughs> I haven't watched the trailer yet. Um, but but these are the big three. These are the big three. So um, I'm, I'm going to ask both of you. Could you rank these three trailers in, first of all, how good the trailers are, and second of all, devoid from the trailers, in which order you're anticipating these movies next year? <laughs> so, so, Seb, I'll come to you first. Um, I think the order's the same for both, which is Civil War top, um, Apocalypse second, Batman versus Superman third. Right, James, does that, is that the same for you? Uh, I, I don't know. That trailer kind of made me more excited for Batman vs. Superman than uh, <laughs> X-Men Apocalypse. Just because of Ben I, Affleck's face. Like, I just love his his angry, angry Batman face. We'll get that one out of the way first because I was fascinated by that trailer. I just... Uh, so bizarre tonally that you've got this dun 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 dun, dun Jesse Eisenberg <laughs> in the kind of like in in the trailer. Um, again, mentioned this off air to you recently, James. But apparently, Max Landis thinks that Jesse Eisenberg is doing him as Lex Luthor in the new movie, which is uh, insane. Um, <laughs> that might be the, the most Max Landis thing that Max Landis has ever said. <laughs> <laughs> but this, but that is. That there's that there which is really weird tonally, um, and you've got Doomsday showing up, who I thought just looked horrendous, like a, a, a knockoff from one of the Hobbit movies. That even Peter Jackson was like, "Look, I'm phoning these movies in, but even that's <laughs> not going to do here." Um, and then, but then at the same time, you've got. I know a lot of people didn't like him. I thought Jesse Eisenberg. I was like, "Ooh, levity." a take on a character I'm interested in seeing that in context and the scenes with Batman and Superman in their alter ego guises Ben Affleck just <laughs> smouldering and seething with rage and the, I, I just thought he was like really really 
um, interesting and I wanted to get to know that character. Do you think in that scene he already knows that Clark is Superman? Because he's so angry to meet him. He's like, <laughs> you. It's possible, I guess. I hope so. Yeah. Um, and then, and then I loved the I loved the Wonder Woman reveal, but then at the same time, it hated the three characters stood next to each other as if, <laughs> hey, this is all you need is three characters stood next to each other, and you will buy a ticket for this movie. Um, but I, Which I really like. It's probably true. For a lot yeah, of people, yeah. But... And and the growl, the the growling quip from <laughs> Batman. It's See? just um, it, it's. Uh, in, at, at the same time, I was kind of completely sold on this movie and completely reinforced my scepticism. But um, I think at the end of the day, I come out of this just, this is the movie of the three I am most interested to see. Like, I have no confidence that it will be a good movie, but I think it's going to be fucking hilarious. But I think it could be. I really think it could be. I think the ingredients are there. I mean, we've we've agreed in the past. Zack Snyder, visually as a filmmaker, very interesting. Doesn't always, you would say, ever come together. <laughs> I was going to say, but, but <laughs> respectfully, the last time he made a good film was Dawn of the Dead, and that was like ten years ago or something. Now was it? I mean, Seb, you're the big DC guy here. What what do you think of Batman v Superman? I mean, I thought the second trailer was probably better than the first trailer, just because. I think <laughs> Super, mainly because Superman it, spoke. Well, Superman spoke, and you had the uh, all the Ben Affleck stuff, and you know I do think Ben Affleck is going to be the best thing about the film. It also reminded us that um, uh, Amy Adams is actually in this franchise because that was something <laughs> we were in danger of forgetting. Hmm. Um, and just, Clark Kent and actually, being a reporter. Yeah, a reporter who's never heard of Bruce Wayne. Good one. <laughs> it's just. I mean, I liked the 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 Wonder Woman moment, the you know, the her showing up, the I thought she was with you, all of that. But it shouldn't have been in that trailer. And I am really, really like I we, quite we like know Jesse the entire Eisen- plot now, don't we? <laughs> yeah. I quite like Jesse Eisenberg. Um and I'm open to an interesting take on Lex Luthor. But I don't think this is that. And like Lex Luthor is pretty much my favourite comic book villain and also has pretty much always been done perfectly when he's been done in live action before because you've had Gene Hackman, Kevin Spacey, John Shea and Michael Rosenbaum have all for different reasons been great Lex Luthers. This does not look encouraging because, <laughs> well you know why, <laughs> just because it's ridiculous. I, and I don't mind a ridiculous Lex Luthor because I love Lex Luthor II from the 90s, which is the original Lex Luthor who faked his own death and implanted his brain in a cloned body with an Australian accent pretending to be his own son. It's one of the most ridiculous things that's ever been done in comics and I've just been rereading it recently and I absolutely love it. So don't get me wrong, I don't mind ridiculous but I just don't see anything interesting in this see, interpretation. See, I, I have this theory that Lex Luthor is playing up like his nerdiness in a kind of Superman Clark Kent duality. And if that's what's happening, then I think it will be a very interesting version of Lex Luthor. If he's just like that, it is completely ridiculous. <laughs> also, are they going to give Kevin Smith a credit for having Doomsday be a monster that's unleashed by Lex Luthor? Because <laughs> that's not from the comics, that's from Kevin Smith. Only if they give him credit for Batman pissing himself in the movie as well. <laughs> Okay, um, we'll, we will um, blast through the next two trailers. So Civil War, 
Um, I, I don't know if you agree with me. I, I'm just I'm so on board for everything the Marvel Cinematic Universe is going to do. And the contrast with the Batman versus Superman trailer was this is a conflict between characters that I have spent the past um, six to eight years investing in on the big screen in on, like the you know Chris Evans has been on screen four or five times, Danny Junior six or seven. I I'm. I had the feels during this trailer. I was going like, to. I will have them during the film as my well. My description of this trailer would be punching with feelings. The fact that the, the the trailer drove home, this is a sequel to Winter Soldier. Yes, it's not a sequel like to Age of Ultron. And yeah. it's just yeah. I mean, I am so on board with everything in the Captain America series, and the character stuff just looks like it's going to be right there in this. And just that line, "He was my friend, so was I." <laughs> That's just. Perfect. Tell it to your blog. <laughs> Tell it to your live journal. <laughs> yeah, and and um, I just it just the look that um, Chris Evans gives Sebastian Stan when he says, you know, when he remembers him stuffing newspapers in his shoes in his mother's name, and you're like, oh god, wow, yeah, Chris Evans, you <laughs> sold that. Re- Even if I couldn't remember who Bucky was, really, uh, you <laughs> sold that in a single. Yeah, really, I, really good. There was an article this week about someone saying they didn't understand why people ship like non-canonical romances and they used Stucky as they call it Stephen Bucky Mm. as an example (laughs) and my only quibble with that would be that particularly in the movie Stephen Bucky is a completely canonical relationship (laughs) (laughs) I'll be honest I I, I think I I tweeted this at the time watching that trailer if I didn't if I wasn't already so sure it wasn't happening and if Hayley Atwell wasn't established as the main like love of Steve Rogers' life, I wouldn't I wouldn't be convinced that they weren't making homosexual subtext text in this movie. The yeah. way that that trailer plays out, it plays like is, a love story. Even, like even you with all the other characters, characters. Like, not even just them. Like the the bit with War Machine and Iron Man, mm. and he's like cradling his unconscious body. It's like, God, I'm okay. gonna I'm gonna cry it's, multiple times. It's like, superhero it's like the trailer was made entirely to be turned into Tumblr gifs. Hmm. And then there's Black Panther looking fucking cool, and I just oh so much about that movie. I'm excited for, but I'm in the bank for Marvel. So if anyone is l- listening and going, they're much harder on Batman v Superman. I feel like one franchise has earned that trust already and that the other <laughs> one is... Not that Civil War is going to be um, a home run. We we had concerns about Age of Ultron, so it's not guaranteed. It's just I, I trust them enough at this point. I mean, the Rus- I- like specifically the Russos, given that they're making the next Avengers movie, it's hard not to see this as a kind of big piece of the puzzle in terms of how they get that many characters relating to each other. Mm. And that trailer makes me optimistic because... You know, the character stuff is clearly in there already. Um, I mean, we haven't even seen Spider-Man yet. <laughs> Spider-Man's in there. Did you see? Oh, I just want it on record. Apparently they said his costume will have a twist. Right? <laughs> I made a joke about this on Twitter, but my actual guess is underarm webbing. <laughs> I'd love that. Because <laughs> they said it was I... they said it was going to be a CG twist. Uh, that'd be cool. And um, the let's move on quickly to the last trailer, which is X-Men Apocalypse. Which to me looks like just an enormous disaster movie uh, with a one big, big, powerful villain in the middle of it. I, um, James, what do you think? I agree. It looks like an enormous disaster. 
<laughs> what didn't you like about it? I mean, I, I, I didn't, I didn't hate it. Um, there was lots of stuff that I don't know. I, I, I found it a very strange trailer that I couldn't really take much away from the, what the movie might be. Apocalypse is probably my favorite X Men villain, hmm. and I don't think they're using him very well from what I've seen. Like they've, you know, they, they've turned him into a kind of Machiavelli. I, I just I don't even know. They just they haven't captured the essence of the character in the way that I'd hope. I mean, it is Oscar Isaac, and Oscar Isaac is. I mean, he's going to be huge coming out of Star Wars, so I think it's quite canny casting. From, um, from I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if this is not a one and done job for Oscar Isaac as Apocalypse. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I'm kind of sold on him. The character design, I'm not sold on. Um, I liked all the references to him being like a. Um, uh, like you know, this I liked the line about you know maybe the Bible named them after him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I thought they really sold the idea that this was a villain more powerful and to, more to be reckoned with than anyone we've met in X Men before. And you know he's got Magneto under his thrall, so he's got to be pretty fucking. Yeah, I mean the thing, like the thing about Apocalypse is that he's kind of uh, hardcore Darwinist, like his his creed is survival of the fittest and he you know he likes to test that i don't really see how that ties in with him blowing up a city i assume it's him like you know that's not a very apocalypse thing to do especially after two thousand years of heidi in the background i'm not that interested in in seeing different slightly different versions of like angel and nightcrawler and characters we've seen before like I don't but it, I mean, it, it is in some regards a chance to get characters right that they didn't get right the first time or just do the same again. I mean, I, I think a lot of people don't like how Storm has been used in those movies to date. So a second chance at Storm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful for Sophie Turner as Jean Grey because I think Sophie Turner has developed into a really fantastic actress on Game of Thrones. Um, yeah, there, there, there are the ingredients there. Um, but you're, you're right, there is something about this trailer that didn't inspire huge confidence. I mean, and uh, neither you, you nor I particularly adore Days of Future Past, which I know a lot of other people did. The thing. Seb, Seb being <laughs> yeah. you know, primary amongst them. <laughs> the thing that I think is right that I saw Jamie McKelvey say on Twitter is that the X Men films tend to go for big world destroying events. Whereas in the comics, what made them work was small character stuff. And I think you don't get enough of them sort of hanging out together and, you know, just being friends. Like, it, they, they don't spend enough time building those character relationships up. Mm. And literally, we've had three films in a row now where they've just reshuffled the cast completely. Like, we're not getting enough time to, to know those characters, except uh, it's things like... McAvoy turning up with a bald head at the end. It's like, do we do we need an origin story for his boldness? Really, is yeah, that what we get? Hated that. Yeah, hated that final shot. Not not hated McAvoy looking like the full Professor X, <laughs> but again that kind of laziness of going. This is what you want, isn't it? Look, yeah. it's it's James McAvoy. He's finally looking like Patrick Stewart. So I don't. That's not as irrelevant. It, it doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. You I mean, finally completed. You finally got the razor out. Congratulations. <laughs> If if there was anything in the in the trailer that I was like, oh, this I'm quite looking forward to this. It was seeing Jubilee in like full '90s X Men animated series mode, just one shot. But that made me think, oh, that's something that for the first time actually resembles the X Men that I fell in love with when I you know first first got into reading comics 20 years ago. 
Well, I do wonder whether this is the first step towards turning the X-Men movie universe into something that resembles I hope the so. animated series. I really do hope so. But We're getting Gambit next. <laughs> and what's more 90s than Gambit? Right, well, that was this week's comic book movie and TV news. Let's move on now to our spoiler-filled discussion of Iron Man 2. But before we dive in, let's take a listen to some ACDC and the trailer for the movie. Pick up now where we left off. Mr. Stark, please. Yes, dear. Could I have your attention? Absolutely. Our priority here is to have you turn over the Iron Man weapon to the American people. Well, you can forget it. We're safe. America is secure. You want my property? You can't have it. But I did you a big favor. I have successfully privatized world peace. We're adjourned for the day. You've been a delight. Okay, give me a smooch for good luck. I might not make it back. You complete me. Okay, so that was the trailer for Iron Man 2, um, and this is our third movie in the MCU, um, yeah, well, maybe fourth, fifth, fifth if you include new releases, but um, when, <laughs> when you're actually going through from uh, from the start, this was the third Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, and um, we're, we're back with Tony Stark. Um, he has... He has returned six months on from the events of the first film in a movie that confusingly, if you're ever looking back at a Marvel chronology, is taking place kind of at the same time as Thor and parts of Captain America. I'm pretty sure I've seen a timeline that sort of lines it up as those three films take place on sort of three consecutive days. And I, and I guess this, this is kind of like a mini phase two in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So it's like phase 1.2 because we got um, Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk and then it became clear that there was enough success from those first two movies. and oh, Particularly, Iron Man was such a runaway success that they were going to go ahead and do the Avengers. Mm. Um, and this yeah, is they, when, this this is the is first when basically the wider mind. public yeah. became aware that it was happening, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think you can separate out those first two, and then you've got these three and Avengers, you know, as, as a four, really. Mm. And I think the, this is definitely far closer to 
Thor and Cap than it is to Iron Man and Incredible Hulk in terms of what it's doing and and where it is, you know. Um, I think something we should probably address very early on. So this is this is generally considered one of the weakest films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, and I, I seem to remember at the time, a lot of reviews and a lot of people were disappointed in this movie by and large, but also particularly disappointed that it didn't feel like a proper Iron Man movie. It felt like a trailer for what was going to come and that there was that it was completely bogged down by all of this setup for the Avengers. And I can kind of see how that might feel like that was the case when you're watching it for the first time. Yeah. You watch it back and there are kind of references to Howard Stark setting up S.H.I.E.L.D. Other than that, we basically get two scenes with Nick Fury and we get the introduction of Black Widow. It, it really, it, for me, it doesn't It doesn't have that baggage at all, given no. what we given what the Avengers was when we eventually got to it. I think that that's the thing. I mean, I, I think it was probably, and, and I would have been as, as guilty of this as anyone, but yeah, kind of going in forearmed with the knowledge that they were going to do an Avengers film. So the moment you get any hint of it, it's like, oh, they're focusing on that instead of focusing on making it an Iron Man film. And, and they close kind of, on it as well, in fact. Yeah. So they do close on it. And there's kind of two things wrong with that, really, because the first thing is, why did we ever think that was a problem? Because, you know, the most <laughs> exciting bits in these films are when they set up things for the next films, you know, um, you know and when they cross over. It's like, you know, in Ant-Man, one of the most fun things is that they can just suddenly drop in on the Avengers and, and turn it into a crossover briefly, you know. Um, and the other thing is, of course, that, yeah, it, it's nowhere near as bad at that. As we think, and I think it's because yeah, we didn't really know exactly what Avengers was going to be, and so because but because we knew Black Widow was going to be an Avengers character, it's oh they've brought in this character who's going to be in a future film, and they've kind of made it all about her. Actually, now knowing the role that Black Widow has in the films, and I think particularly if you set this alongside her role in Winter Soldier, she like nobody's downright underused here, doesn't she? Well, yeah, and it's like nobody looks at Winter Soldier and goes, "Oh, Black Widow's in that film too much." They've made made it practically into a Black Widow film. No one thinks that it's because she's really good at being a, a kind of co-lead or, or supporting character in these films, and actually you know, completely divorce this film from the MCU and what you've got is a really cool secondary lead character who shows up, doesn't really get to be in the film enough, but even if, you know, if that was all that she was in it, you would just think that's a cool character that they've added in the same way as War Machine is. I mean, you know. And actually, if you look at the way that it does it and compare it to the addition of Hawkeye to Thor, you go, <laughs> yeah. wow, you, I mean, you, you weave that in fairly impressively. Well done. It didn't, it didn't feel too distracting. It was just, oh, who's this badass new character? Like, to be fair, I remember when, when I saw the film, I, I spent a lot of time thinking, why is Black Widow sealing screen time from, you know, the hero we actually care about? And in, like... Now when I rewatch it, I do think Black Widow isn't really doing anything plot-wise. Like, you could take her out of the movie and not lose anything significant. Yeah, but, on, but that's kind of a bigger but, problem yeah, with the but film. on the other whole, hand, but... <laughs> like, every time she's on screen, I'm like, I wish Black Widow was in it more. I love the uh, I love the the scene where she's introduced, Natalie Rushman as she is at that point because she's <laughs> undercover, and Tony being the lech that he is is basically drooling over her, and she barely says a word, but she flashes him this these little looks with her eyes, and I'm not sure whether at the time as well we appreciated what they were getting in Scarlett Johansson. 
I think she's just an incredible, incredible actress, and she, at that point, maybe, didn't have the reputation that she has now. Mm. Um, and I think she's really good in that the, she, knowing that she's a double agent, you can absolutely see it, and you can absolutely see the way that she is pushing the buttons that she wants to push on Tony, but she's she's also doing it so subtly that um, that he is always going to be oblivious to it. You just reminded me of the line that made me laugh the most when I rewatched it, which was when she gives him the martini and says, is that dirty enough for you? <laughs> I was like, that's hilarious. Because <laughs> it, like, it's, uh, it's so calculated and yet, like, so obviously designed to confuse and unnerve him. Yeah, yeah. She's, um, I think she's genuinely fantastic in this film. And you're right, at the time, you're like, why is this character distracting us? And looking back and knowing who that character is, you're like, oh, can, can we give her more to do than just kind of wrong foot Tony and then have an action scene at the end that doesn't ultimately impact things? The thing that I noticed at the end of this is that when it gets to the final scene, she's sitting in front of a computer, like, shouting instructions. And, like, mm. I was thinking, oh, that it feels like you've really underused this character because she's not involved in the actual fight anymore. Mm. Like, she gets, like, you know, that one good sort of hit girl corridor scene. Yeah. And then that's it, that's it. She's in front of a computer for the rest of it. I mean, it's a testament to what Joss Whedon was able to pull off so soon after this, but also what Marvel has become so adept at doing, which is building these ensemble casts. I mean, looking at this film, you go, well, Black Widow couldn't really have been there because the, the finale has to be Tony and Rhodey teaming up and that that kind of superhero pairing paying off. But maybe maybe a better constructed film, especially a film that has two different villains in two different locations, could have paid that off a lot more effectively. Mm-hmm. I, I tell you, the other thing I was really yearning for was... I wanted to see the scenes with Gwyneth Paltrow and Scarlett Johansson playing out. Yeah, uh, there's there's these like little hints at how that relationship is developing while Tony's <laughs> not there. This kind of jealousy, but also Pepper brought her in in the first place, so she she likes her and likes her competence. And also, when Natalie has revealed herself as Natalia and is no longer just flirting with Tony nonstop. In fact, you can <laughs> see that Tony feels kind of like that he feels like she has definitely got the better of him and Pepper senses that and you can see her, the, the way she treats Natalie changes from that point on. Um, I, I wanted to see those two acting together um, yeah. and I would like, in any future film, please put Gwyneth Paltrow and um, Scarlett Johansson in scenes at the same time, Marvel. That would be delightful. It's the, it's the one where they're in his office where he goes to pick his model up and she's just ignoring yes. him and he's like taunting her with the knowledge that he knows know she's yeah. undercover now like mm-hmm. just that one scene is you know it's worth worth her being in the film for that okay well um i feel we've adequately addressed um, scarlett johansson and black widow <laughs> we should probably move on to actually talking about the film but that was fun um <laughs> <laughs> so the movie begins with you know six months later Iron Man is a celebrity. He's jumping out of the sky into the Stark Expo, which is like the World's Fair, and Tony's brought it back, and he's a celebrity and he's a rock and roll star. And no way, that doesn't happen for 10 minutes because we have to watch Mickey Rourke and his bird and his dying father in a little shack in Russia. (sighs) I mean, they they really should have started with him jumping out the plane into the fireworks with sort of the rock music playing shouldn't they instead of 
Yeah. Some guy in a, like, frankly, with Mickey Rourke's face in a shack with his dying father. It's like, if... And then then montage of him building a suit. So from the very start, you're like, ah, cool, he's going to fight a guy who's got a suit like his. (laughs) The thing is, it's kind of, you know, it is... It's putting a foot wrong, but you can you can see why because you know it is a thing with superhero movies and especially with like you know the first sequel of a superhero movie. It's like you've done the hero in the first film, and it is a kind of pretty natural course to go and make the second film be about the villain, and that's okay if your villain is the Mandarin, like, right? Alfred- <laughs> the, the main well. the main Iron Man villain that would have that would have made sense if that well was that ben, yeah I, mean, I was going to say if it was if it was Alfred Molina's Doctor Octopus or mm. if it's Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman you know um, or Joker. you know Batman Returns yeah. I think opens with the Penguin's origin doesn't it mm-hmm. um, you know if you've got a really strong compelling villain that is going to dominate the film and be the best thing about it then opening with them front and centre and exploring their story before then bringing in the hero that we all know but hey, is a good idea. If you've but had a first instalment where the hero dominates everything because you have got this absolute cult of personality at the centre of it in Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark, yeah. Well, that's, how, that's, how could anyone <laughs> compete with that? That's the thing. That, I mean, there's two reasons why you don't with Iron Man. The first one is that Whiplash isn't a very good villain. And secondly, <laughs> when you've got Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man, you shouldn't do anything other than put him completely front and centre because, yeah. <laughs> John Favreau was saying, so apparently the script, which um, is certainly was written by um, Justin Theroux, but he, apparently his original script started off with Iron Man and the kind of... the the Whiplash stuff was kind of told in flashbacks or it was cutting from Tony to um, Anton... Is it Anton Vanko or is that his dad? Anton Vanko is his dad, yeah. What's his name? Yeah, I, 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 Ivan. Ivan. Ivan because one. he is a Russian who was created in the Silver Age of comics, <laughs> so of course his name is Ivan. <laughs> um, there was Ivan a bit, the there's a bit where... Um, Hammer calls him Ivan and I thought he was making a joke and then I was like oh no that's yeah. his joke that's his name <laughs> that's actually his name. Um, well yeah so apparently they didn't do that because they thought it was just tonally it didn't feel right and that it, it didn't this kind of like gritty um, eastern uh, like guy do, going through basically what Tony goes through in a cave at the start of Iron Man wasn't tonally working, and it worked in Iron Man because y- you had this you had this character that you should dislike, but you knew he was going to get brought to his lowest, and that they, they could they could do that kind of non-linear stuff in the first Iron Man, and that they didn't think that they could pull it off here tonally. Um, and I kind of agree with that, and but then I I wonder whether just Whiplash in that case just didn't work like it or te- trying to tell that story of this guy who is basically tony but from the east and who has had none of the luck none of the opportunity um and potentially his dad was screwed over it's never really i don't feel like it's ever adequately explained whether anton was screwed over or not and given that we know Howard Stark fairly well at this point. You could still say you could say it would have gone potentially either way. Um, yeah. So it just it does feel weird, and also it feels weird to be setting up this villain as someone who is such an underdog and never really has a hope in hell. 
I mean, it's, it's weird. He feels he always feels like a shit version of Iron Man who doesn't have. I was I was going to say he's not even the main villain of the piece, is he? Like Sam Rockwell is the main villain. Mm. Like that's what it comes down to at the end. Like Whiplash is a henchman. Yeah, and even when you get to like the final fight, you know. It's yeah. actually over and done with really <laughs> yeah. quickly. In seconds. Yeah. It's just... Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, that for me is almost everything that's wrong with this movie is the villains. Because you're right, Whiplash is the secondary villain. He has made a henchman of Justin Hammer. Except when it comes to the big finale, Justin Hammer is swiftly and embarrassingly <laughs> swept aside and Whiplash becomes our main villain again, Mm -hmm. except yet still doesn't put up a fight. And I'd say I love Sam Rockwell as Justin Hammer. I think Sam Rockwell is fantastic in this movie, playing, again, a shit version of Tony Stark. (laughs) A Tony Stark who doesn't quite have the charm and doesn't quite have the swagger and doesn't quite have the business sense or the nous or the, like, the... um, even the morals or the ambition. But, so he's just, he is, again, a, a Tony Stark who, but he's an underdog Tony Stark. And yes, he's an asshole, but there are times in this movie where you feel sorry for him because he's trying his best, <laughs> I but love, he's just so damn useless. I love every time he makes a joke that no one laughs at and yes. they sort of politely <laughs> applaud. Oh, when he's dancing out onto the stage mm-hmm. at, the, at the start. It's so, it's so cringeworthy. Like, it's just perfect. Yeah, because, uh, well, and, uh, you know, Sam, and Sam Rockwell goes hell for love with this. He is uh, fake tanned orange uh, <laughs> because he thought that would work for the character. And he's very, very right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it just feels weird that these two characters characters are there and that you have these dual villains one of whom i really like but they just never work that just conceptually they never work and now apparently in an early version of the script they were both going to be russians and they were going to be working together from word go and that whiplash would actually have been killed he were mate he might not have actually been whiplash but the first villain would have been killed in monaco and the other villain the other guy would have become the main threat at that point but even um, if you do that, you lose some of the most fun stuff with Hammer, which is when Hammer is first recruiting and then getting annoyed at Whiplash. <laughs> you know, those, mm. those bits are probably some of Sam Rockwell's best bits in the film. And that, you know, my my biggest problem the first time I saw this was that I felt like it was a waste of Sam Rockwell. And the second time watching it now, I still think it's a bit of a waste of Sam Rockwell, but I can enjoy what he does get to do quite a bit more. And both of those main scenes that he shares with Vanko are great. <laughs> I mean, I, I know, again, we're, we're kind of jumping ahead to the end here, but, like, he's just shuffled off stage, just, like, he's just <laughs> there with Pepper, and then the police get called, and then, oh, that's it, he's been arrested. And there's no resolution to his story <laughs> It reminds me of the end of More Rats, where they just sort of drag Svenning off. Is it Svenning? Yeah. <laughs> no, they're uh, Ben Affleck. Um, Ben Affleck, yeah. yeah they yeah. just sort of drag him off. It's weird that those two don't work. I actually, I quite like the idea of what the film, or at least what I feel the film is trying to do here, which is that, it, yeah, I, I am I, I am kind of a, a little bit bored by the idea of, here is a superhero. Let's put him up against a superhero who is like him, but isn't. So, like, we got... I mean, I still think Jeff Bridges, once he actually gets in the suit in Iron Man, is a disappointment. And the abomination in Hulk is an abomination. (laughs) And then we get Whiplash. I mean, Marvel didn't waste any time having a villain problem. Um, (laughs) But I like the idea that in Whiplash, he's kind of fighting this 
mirror version of himself this mm. kind of this kind of like bitter version of himself who has has basically the same he is tony but he's like a grizzled downtrodden version of tony who is driven by revenge and then you've got hammer who is mm. tony but he's a shit version of tony as a businessman um, yeah. and then the third villain running through the movie is really the fact that tony is dying that this invention that he's put in his chest to keep himself alive is actually killing him. So again, he's kind of fighting. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And... Don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Himself in that regard. And I mean, I, I the self-destruction that that brings about with the drunkenness and the, you know, and, and all that comes with it. I mean, you could even extend it further that sort of, I think almost every major strand in this film is about Tony confronting either better or worse versions of himself. Because yeah. you've got, as you've said, you've got the two villains who are essentially worse versions of it. But then you've got War Machine, who is basically the government going, look, your technology's great, but we don't think you're fit to do it. Here's what happens when we put a proper pilot in it and give him proper weapons and stuff. He's better than you. And then you've got you've got Pepper being made CEO of Stark Enterprises, and basically, you know, the whole point of that is that Pepper takes over Stark and runs it better than Tony. Mm. And you've got Tony sort of Tony is a superhero, and then he encounter you know, he basically discovers in this film I mean he was already aware of Fury and the Avengers initiative, but he basically discovers that there is a bigger plot. Uh, you know, to create superheroes and run them and do them better than him. And at the end of the film, he finds out he's not even invited to the party, although, mm. you know, they wreck on that pretty quickly. <laughs> and, um, you know, the spectre of over the whole thing is, you know, his father who preceded him and he's trying to live up to his father's legacy. And one of the things that he does in this film is essentially he becomes the better Stark, you know, because throughout the films up to this point, it's been all about Howard Stark was the, you know, the great innovator and the great man and Tony's kind of living in his shadow. Mm. And then at the end of this film, he achieves something that his father wasn't, even though it's kind of handed to him by his dad's legacy. He's able to take that and further it and, you know, become... The, the all-important Stark of the present day. So, it, you know, it's a shame the film, you have to kind of look for it because the film almost, it has this theme and this quite well-structured yeah. theme and it doesn't really dig at it very much or, you know, make itself about it as much as it should do. It's like it's there, yeah. <laughs> but it's almost as if the film doesn't want you to know it's, it's there. Like, I mean, it, you know? it, it does in the regard that it, it, it hammers home the word legacy at you mm. at every turn and that... Tony is 
searching for this legacy. And I mean, he thinks he's dying. He, th- he, he doesn't think he can solve this. So he's selling his artwork and he is going out and living on the edge and uh, driving motor cars through Monaco and basically just doing everything he wants to do, but is also kind of racked with guilt and self-doubt at kind of not not thinking he is not thinking he's worthy and seeing all these better things around him and wanting to build this legacy but being yeah haunted by the specter of his father and by all these ver- better versions of himself it really is there it's just that the film is dragged down so much by the actual the villains and the plot because essentially the plot of the movie is Tony easily overcomes two fundamentally weaker <laughs> versions of himself as villains and manages to save himself by solving a riddle. And that's it. Basically, by the end of the movie, it's 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 great character work for Tony, but the plot in in its in its broadest strokes is not very good. Mm. It's it's or it's or it's just not it's, it's non-existent because all of the problems that are put in front of him are so easily solved. Yeah. <laughs> Should we talk about Don Cheadle coming in? I was here, gonna say re- like Don replacing <laughs> replacing Terence Howard. Howard. Poor Terence Howard. <laughs> John Favreau taking that Steven Soderbergh advice. If you could put Don Cheadle in your movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's I think we, we did already talk in in you know when discussing the first film about how little chemistry Robert Downey Jr. and Terence Howard have got. Mm-hmm. And then Don Cheadle just strolls into this film and it, you just instantly buy that yeah, he's totally like, his you completely friend. forget that Terence just... Howard even existed, frankly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You just assume that Don Cheadle must have played him in the first mm-hmm. film because he's just well, is it the, the, the court scene where you first the hearing where yeah, he walks yeah. in and he's like, Yeah, I'm there. yeah, I'm here. Don't yeah, worry, and it's like, just forget about it. <laughs> it's like you've known him for years. <laughs> no, let's not make it know. a thing. I think he says something <laughs> like that. <laughs> See, because it's it's, yeah. it's a much more subtle version of the uh, James Bond. This never happens to the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go on record as saying that Don Cheadle slash James Rhodes is probably my favourite character in the MCU. And like, oh wow, I just I love him to that degree. That's why I was very happy he's, to see uh, him turn up in Civil War. Yeah, I think mm. he's better. Or, or at least he's he gets to have more fun in Iron Man three, definitely. Yeah, he's so he's so good in that. <laughs> but here he has a he has a really difficult part to play because he has to in some way play the fun police with yeah. Tony and go like, look, stop drinking and womanizing and just basically being a fucking rad rock star and I'm gonna steal your suit and take it to the military because. None of that is pretty. None of that's cool. You're, you're being a buzzkill, and then you're being a government shill for a government that we're pretty pretty sure in that they're working with Justin Hammer are fairly corrupt. So it's it's not you're not rooting for him, but also Don Cheadle plays it in such a way, and the movie sells Tony's behaviour in such a way that. Um, I think I think you do buy him, and I think you do root for him, despite that. I mean, that's well, he's kind of like he he's the voice of reason, but obviously because the film needs you to be on Tony's side, you don't want to acknowledge that he's the voice of reason, but you kind of know deep down that he is. And it's like you know when Tony kind of lets him in inverted commas steal the suit, and they have that fight and stuff. Like that wouldn't work if the two of them had agreed that they would stage a fight and Rhodey would take the armour. The fact that Tony decides, I'm going to let him have it, 
doesn't detract from the fact that Rhodey sets out to do that and, and, you know, is singular in his purpose to actually take it to the government and say, you know, this is what you asked me to do. I've brought it to you kind of thing. Mm. Um, And, you know, because he knows that if he's the one who brings it to them, there will still be that level of control over it that wouldn't be there if someone else just came along. So it's like he's kind of, he's both doing it for the government and doing it for Tony. And it's like, yeah, he is kind of, I mean, he's not the bad guy, but as you, I mean, I think Fun Police is a great way to describe <laughs> the role that he plays at that point. Um, but, you know, you realise, particularly by the end, that he was completely right in doing that, so, even if it did mean going and putting guns all over it. <laughs> so, James, were you sold on Don Cheadle after this movie? Was, it, was, was there enough on show already that you were like, yeah, okay? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, th- I think, to be fair, it was that college humour Captain Planet thing you did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, was it funny I die? Something like that. But that was when I was like, oh, he's good and he's got a sense of humour. And like, I just like the War Machine armour, so I'm a kind of fanboy in that regard. But <laughs> What do you think about the suits in this movie? Because um, it seems to be an aspect that fascinates people. I mean, I know that there are loads of, like, if you want, you can go out and buy a model of every single Iron Man suit. And there is always yeah. much speculation about which Mark suit is that and what's we that. Got, we should have got Jamie McKelvey on this one. <laughs> um, I, the briefcase armour is the only armour that I can tell apart from the others in the movie. What? Not well, counting the original first well, one. Well, so, right, let me try it. So the first one is the one that he had at the end of Iron Man. I don't know what mark that is. Maybe three, four, who knows? Number. Add a number. Um, the second one is the briefcase one. And then the third one at the end is different because it has a triangle. And that's yeah. because he's changed. Yeah. Because the triangle is the element that he's put in his new... But that's the only difference I can notice on this, that is, is that he gets a triangle for this. Well, then the suitcase one is silver instead yeah. of gold. Mm-hmm. I think the suitcase one is pretty cool. I think they pull off that. I think they pull I, off I that. I love it. Um, it's great. I think they pull off the CG of that fitting to him pretty well. And I like that we get to see it once. That it's not a thing that we have to keep coming back to. It's I mean, like, okay. I just think it's quite funny that he's that you know. Um, Happy's carrying this briefcase <laughs> around as if there's any like mystery over what it is. <laughs> the thing I like most about that is that it combines two sort of things from the comics. Like it's a real fanboy thing. Like as much as Hulkbuster turning up in Age of Ultron is the idea that Tony keeps his armor in a suitcase. Like that was always a thing in the comics for like for mm. years. That was, and then that it's the red and silver version as well because that was a separate era where he had, like, it was called the Silver Centurion armour. Right. And like, I love that that was a kind of... It was an Easter egg, but they also found a way to make it make sense in that, like, he's out on business. He doesn't expect to be Iron Man, but he's got it there if he wants it. Because I think, like, part of the fun of Iron Man is seeing seeing the suits and, you know, the different ones he mm. makes, uh, like, specifically as well. Iron Man 3 has an absolute field day with it. Oh, yeah. And in, like, in the cartoon... It was, there was that, like, the 90s Iron Man cartoon, there was a thing of him sort of coming up with a different version of Iron Man almost every week, in fact. Right. And, like, when I remember watching it and just loving, in the credits, they had a lineup of all the different armors. And I was, like, really excited to see which one they were going to use in this episode. And, like, that, that definitely carries through to the films for me. I actually, I actually think that in, in comparison to the first film, one of the things that this, this film generally improves upon is the big action set pieces. Um, like I said, the third one, the, the the final set piece in the park with all the drones and then Whiplash is disappointing, but I'm not sure it's any worse than the one that finishes the first movie, 
Whereas by comparison, I think the the Monaco GP. Sorry, but exploding a real bugbear of mine in movies <laughs> is racing cars that have so much fuel in that they explode because <laughs> that doesn't happen. Nah. I mean, that maybe used to happen in like the fifties, but. But no, I, the, the Monaco set piece, I really like that as a set piece up until that point with that explosion. Like, the racing stuff is good and Whiplash smashing up the cars is good. And it's like, at that point, they're, they're almost verging on, on being as good as Rush in terms of the racing. And then you get the car explosion and it turns into Driven. I do find it a bit odd that, like, they're literally running him down in a car and he's just sort of shrugging it off. <laughs> Like, there's yeah. no suggestion that he's got a kind of exoskeleton or anything on. It's like, how many people could survive that? Like, he's literally pinned against the <laughs> yeah. wall by a car. It's just, it's strange. I, I just, I just generally like the way that it's staged. I, feel, I think the, 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 the flipping of the cars is really cool. Mm. I, I like them making It's a really good setting fight with well. that. Yeah, they, I mean, it looks incredible. Oh, yeah, it looks like, really a, awesome. It's such and, a Tony Stark place to be as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he was, so they did Las Vegas in the first film and fold it up with Monte Carlo here. Yeah, it's, that's, that makes total sense. Um, and John Favreau on the commentary track dropped um, Bond in there as well which I swear mm. just every superhero movie is <laughs> paying homage to Bond in some way he's like he's like I kind of feel like these are my versions of the old like this this the Iron Man films are the closest to classic Bonds and that's the kind of vibe I was going for here with like our hero jet setting to these glamorous locations and uh, yeah that's uh, so, so uh, tick, uh, you know drink we've had a Bond reference um, <laughs> the, the, uh, moving on to the this the second big action sequence which is the fight between well I guess I guess he's not quite War Machine at that point but between Rhodey and Tony in the suits and um Again, I, I I really like that. It's it's personal and um, it's developing character, and the music is super cool that it's playing out to. Like it just <laughs> it, the the, it, the the whole scene has a real rhythm, and it's it's so perfectly Iron Man that Tony Stark picks the soundtrack for his fight with his best friend. <laughs> <laughs> it's just wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, th- what what do you guys think of that one? Well, it's you know, I mean, it's. It's giving you what you were kind of promised by the premise of this film, which is two blokes in near-identical Iron Man suits punching the hell out of each other. So, you know, it's it's the natural escalation point after the first one, really. Um, me, but it feels somewhat, like somewhat f- better than the Hulk fighting Abomination. It feels like the only fair fight in the movie. <laughs> like, I mean, and again, Tony. I mean, Tony is an, at a huge advantage in that. His suit is better developed, and that he um, knows how to pilot it. But we get the big leveler is that he is absolutely pissed as a fart. So he, <laughs> we finally, we finally and get as a, a soldier. Sorry, and Rhodey is a soldier. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess there is that. Um, and and yeah, so it feels for the the one and only time in the film that Tony is actually challenged. I mean, he feels like the challenge of actually solving. The problem of him dying, but in essence, his dad fixes that for him. Um, at, like this, this feels like the only fair fight he has, and um, <laughs> he loses. You know, it, it, it kind of makes it, it again makes me kind of excited for the whole prospect of a film like Civil War, where you have two characters who you like going up against each other. And you kind of agree with them both, um, and you kind of feel you feel like they're evenly matched. And it's and, and like I say, character-wise, this drives on 
Tony as a character more than fighting Whiplash. We've we, we've talked before about you know action films often struggle to make the action have any kind of thematic or character significance. You know, I, I think it's a particular bugbear of James's. Oh, definitely. Um, and and this is one that does, and you know, it is. It, you know, because it, it isn't just if it was just a random guy who had stolen an Iron Man suit showing up and having a fight with Tony, then it would be one of those you know identical action sequences that didn't really mean anything. But as it is, it does. Well, that's mm, like so. compare it to the fight with Whiplash. Like there, you know, there aren't any personal stakes in that. Mm. Like you get yeah, you get Whiplash shouting. Yeah, he kind of shouts, sort of. Oh, you know, you you stole my father's technology or whatever. But yeah, he but doesn't. Like, as Joe he said earlier, like, we don't. That. Yeah, and we don't care about it. Yeah, we don't know if it's. We don't know if it's true. We still don't and know if it's true. Tony didn't really know about it. So yeah, yeah. it's like Tony's got no horse in that fight. Mm-hmm. That's not the phrase. <laughs> but, yeah. Something we should go back to is um, one of my favourite scenes in the movie, and um, it's the courtroom scene at the start. <laughs> it's. It actually feels like really. Um, Looking at it now, it feels kind of important for where we are with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, with the politics starting to come into things. Mm-hmm. And obviously we get a great callback to this scene in <laughs> Captain America the Winter Soldier, like the mm-hmm. best callback to this scene possible. Characters uh, who you never thought you'd see <laughs> reappear. Oh, it's funny. Gary Shandling. It's funny, isn't it, how it changes like changes the tone of that scene yeah. when you're looking going, he's Completely. Hydra. Hail yeah. Hydra, yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I mean, and you kind of you kind of get that he is. I mean, because obviously, I don't think they were planning for him to be Hydra oh, no, at yeah, the time. Obviously. But obviously, they were showing us a corrupt politician who was in league with uh, Justin Hammer. The problem I think that the MCU films have got is, for a while, um, they had the problem of not knowing how to present the government and authority in general. Because on the one hand, you've got stuff like this where, you know, the government are all kind of slimy characters like Gary Shandling's senator and they want to take the Iron Man armour and they want to do unpleasant things with it because that's what governments do when they get their hands on weapons. But on the other hand, um, you know, it's it's the government and it's people in authority who put the Avengers together. You know, the Avengers are essentially a government-sponsored task force to begin with. Mm. So you've got these kind of twin things of, you know, are we supposed to be on the side of the government or are we supposed to be against? But, like, I think what Winter Soldier managed to do was basically say, you know, we've had this situation where you've not been sure, you know, whether to trust the government. But actually, it's been because of Hydra. It's sort of Winter Soldier was the point at which you could say, okay, anything where you've been worried about people in positions of authority in these films is because Hydra have been infiltrating it. That's true. I think... think, But up to this point, it was all a bit muddy. I think Captain America 2 also had the benefit of saying, look, things aren't always that cut and dry. And, I mean, that, that comes into play in the first Avengers movie as well, where you get... You get this idea that Shield are a force for good, but also that they aren't to be completely trusted. Um, mm. And I, yeah, and I think that I think that's probably more the situation we're in here. Is that so? We've got a character like Rhodey who works for the military on behalf of the government, and we have Shield, but but that necessarily not everything is to be trusted and that yes that we do have mm. our main face of the government is this slimy senator um but i think i think basically captain america 2 did a very good job of 
comparatively going um, things aren't always just as cut and dry and that these situations are very complex and that's what makes it difficult for a character like Captain America who came from a world where there was goodies and baddies and um, for most of the Winter Soldier there is a very there is a very good balance of the, the, the lines aren't that clear anymore not in 2015 mm. um, but yeah, yeah I mean in, in, in this film you're right it, it does it, yeah there is I, I feel like especially hopping between the different films there is a kind of inconsistency or confusion um, I mean because and, and then you've got General Ross in the in the Hulk movies as well of course mm. um, yeah I think the thing is, is is yeah sort of to begin with you know these because you know traditionally sort of superheroes do operate on their own out of the auspices of the normal order of authority because if they were in the normal order of authority they'd be cops you know um, so yeah in kind of Hulk and in this you know they're, they're against the government because the government want to control them and it's only when you get to Avengers and it's like oh the government are actually sending them places to go and work for them <laughs> you know? mm. there's, a, there's, a, there's probably a very very interesting article to be written about the role of politics and the government in the Marvel Cinematic Universe well I, I, I think they should maybe make a movie about what happens when the government <laughs> I was gonna to say too much control over yeah, wait until after Civil War to write that article <laughs> yeah no absolutely absolutely um, but yeah um, I, I, here I think it plays as just a wonderful wonderful scene to get I mean first of all, Gary Shandling is fantastic I mean I don't know about you guys I adore the Larry Sanders show like it's one of my favourite comedies of all time and um, I just just such a fan, and the fact that we don't get to see much of Gary Shandling makes this so much more enjoyable. That he is here, front and center, right at the start of the sequel to one of the biggest, most successful <laughs> um, comic book movies of all time. <laughs> um, and he is he is just, um, I mean, he's just fantastically slimy. But also in this scene, you know, we're getting the introduction of Justin Hammer. We're getting the reintroduction of Rhodey. And we are getting Tony Stark at his grandstanding best. I mean, he is, he's just like, he's being everything we expected him to be from the first film. And you get this sense that in the six months that have passed, that he has embraced the idea, at least publicly, that before he was a guy that was on the front of magazines, now he's on the front of every magazine. <laughs> and he is so adored that he can basically flip the bird to the government and say no you're not having my, you're not having any of this and he is just he has free reign he is left completely unchecked and in a way what Gary Shandling's saying isn't that unreasonable <laughs> what that sentence is saying maybe should have been listened to mm-hmm. Again, it'd make a fascinating like comparison with what we're what we're moving towards with Civil War. Um, there's, I mean, there's so much I like about this movie. Like, there is, well, that's the thing, just, isn't it? It's yeah. all of this. It's all of this really good stuff strung together, but they did sort of forget to give it a proper plot and structure. Yeah, like there's the think. end. Like the end of the film doesn't. It doesn't feel like a big win, does it? It just feels like oh, we mm. got over that minor obstacle as well and it's like i you know i one of my one of my favorite things in the mcu and you know one of my favorite characters in the whole mcu is pepper and one of my favorite things full stop in the mcu is the relationship between tony and pepper and the way that that's developed mm. over the course of the films <laughs> and and you know this is the key film this is the film <laughs> where they actually get together yeah, those scenes, and, probably and, the, and, you know, tony the moments scenes removed from everything else are 
like oh yeah every individual scene is wonderful the scene with the strawberries and that you know that is just like the most key scene that completely sums up their relationship <laughs> where he has realized basically as he's about to as he thinks he's about to die he's realized that he's in love with her he wants to go and tell her and he has and despite the fact that in every other sense he's the most confident man in the world he has no idea how to do so and he brings her a gift that is the worst possible gift he could have possibly brought her and he doesn't realise um, that the best one he's given her, he gave her right at the start of the film <laughs> when he hands the company over to her. Is that, I mean, yeah. and that's such a lovely moment as well. Yeah, it's like every individual scene, but there aren't enough of them. So actually, if you just took those scenes out, they're so flimsy in terms of, like, over the course of the running time of a film, establishing that this is how these people become a couple. And yet, despite that, despite the fact that they're so short, everything about how those two characters and those two actors work together means that it does almost still just about pull it off. It's classic like it's, screwball stuff, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah definitely. It's just, there isn't enough of it, but it's so good that even there not being enough of it is almost I mean, enough. It's kind of, it's, it still feels like the kiss at the end kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah, like, it's kind of odd to be watching a superhero movie and being like, oh, I wish there was more romance in it. But like, they, they really <laughs> <Yeah>. underplayed <laughs> it too far, because when they kiss on the roof, you're like, uh, I, I suppose that makes sense, but... Well, it just it just feels like oh well, that's the point at which they should be, and particularly then having seen them in Avengers and Iron Man three, yeah. and again when they're properly a couple, and and the way that they get to spark off each other works brilliantly, and this just feels like oh well, it's about time you got. Well, that's the thing; that. like the emotions yeah. are there, but the but the narrative isn't like it. You know, there's yeah. no plot reason for it to happen. It's it's strange given that how uh, so so many times with these kind of movies a romance is shoehorned into things for the sake of it. And I would argue that there are probably films within the MCU that have romances that there is... There's just no place for, and I'm looking at you, Thor. <laughs> <laughs> um, and prob- I mean, and probably even Guardians of the Galaxy and stuff like that, but, like, you, you can't make these kind of movies without there being a quote-unquote love interest. Mm. And the fact that Pepper transcends that being a quote-unquote love interest, but at the same time doesn't... Yeah, you're right. Doesn't It doesn't get the amount of time that you want it to get. I mean, it, Because instead we're I also watching Mickey Rourke ask for his beard. <laughs> I, want, I want my beard. I want to know what happened to... There was a shot in one of the pre-release trailers of Pepper... Um, kissing Tony goodbye in a sort of, like in a friendly as before they'd got together, but um, and kissing his head like <laughs> kissing his helmet. I was gonna say that doesn't come out right, <laughs> but the Iron Man helmet when he's not wearing it, she kisses mm. it before he puts it on, and it was it was a really great little character gag yeah. that's in the trailer and isn't in the. Film. I feel like this film uh, transformed in the editing bay from from what I could from what I could tell from what um, John Favreau was saying. You know the fact that there was this alternative opening. Two two films uh, in a row where Marvel completely changed <laughs> the opening for the worse. I think with this and the yeah. Incredible Hulk. Um, and and yeah, there are there, there are a lot of deleted scenes, lots of little things here and there, and uh, maybe maybe even not just the editing bay, but from the original script to the shooting scripts, probably underwent went some fairly major changes. I I I'm just surprised that they weren't more confident with what they were doing. Like I see, I think the problem is maybe they're a bit too confident. In that they were famously quite loose when they recorded Iron Man, weren't they? Like they did go off script and ad lib a lot, and didn't have it locked mm. down before they filmed it. And then I think they tried to do the same again, and it just didn't work. I think yeah, that's what possibly. happened. They just, you know, they thought they were getting 
gold in exactly the same way and it didn't you know just didn't stitch together as nicely as the first one no partly i guess because it's a lot longer Hmm. i mean you're right about you're right about it not stitching together because in terms of them getting gold i think they still do i mean this is still i mean this is why for me anyone saying that this is the worst movie in the mcu is just crazy because this is an iron man movie with robert downey jr like that still <laughs> yeah. is so good. It's still I mean, it's, so it's, good. It's so much better than Incredible Hulk. It has some of the same problems as Incredible Hulk, but all of the character stuff and the good set pieces just walk all over anything that Incredible Hulk has to offer, really. I, I just wonder so whether this movie hasn't been revisited by enough people since. I mean, because, mm. yes, it does have these flaws, but I think there are a good few movies in the MCU that have flaws like this or much greater this, but just don't think, have the fun at the center of them that an iron man movie inherently does i mean i, I we're going to be getting a better idea when we actually do go back and revisit the rest of the films but there's at least two films that i'm certain in the mcu are not as good as this and i'd be i'd say that maybe three or four that by the time we I mean, get to I, them I mean, depending on how I feel about um, Thor 2 on a rewatch, and I've still only seen that once, I still feel like I would put this, like, second bottom. But previously, I would have put it second bottom because, oh, I didn't think it was very good. Now I would just put it second bottom because I still think everything else is better than it. But that's because everything else is so good. You know? <laughs> I have this. Um, I have this leagues ahead of uh, Thor two for what it's worth. But uh, I, I mean, I'd say I, I, I would need to. Having only seen it once, I would need to go back uh, properly. But that's the only other one I can think of that I think Thor two, Incredible Hulk, and this. Previously, I would have put on a similar level. I now think Incredible Hulk is on a level far below this and Thor two, and that these are on a level below. Cap one and Thor one. See, I I think its biggest crime was probably not being as good as Iron Man. Like, I think mm. people were were let down so badly by it not being a sort of tight and witty and well constructed. And I think you know at the time, remember there were only three MCU films, including this. So it was like it, you know, it kind of yeah. shook the whole foundation of this multi-film series they were building. Yeah, and I, you that's know, I think I think that's what people reacted to at the time i think if you i think you're right if they went back and revisited people would probably be a lot more lenient with it these days i was reading um i was reading back some reviews earlier because i was i was wondering whether that avengers thing was something that i was just remembering that wasn't there but then no it is i mean it is peppered in no there i do remember the, people saying yeah it, yeah um and i was reading one review um for all the flaws in the structure pacing and plotting and a general confusion over what it's actually trying to do. The quality of the cast and some superb set pieces make for enjoyable popcorn fluff. It's just a shame that the first film created expectations that this sequel wasn't capable of matching. Um, that's from Film4.com, said Patrick. <laughs> I was going to say, I thought that sounded familiar. <laughs> that sounded like something I would say. Yeah. Um, and Seb, another one of the points that you make in the review, which I think is something that you alluded to, is that generally when a first film in a superhero franchise has been so well received that generally in those cases the sequel mm. is a step up that it kind of yeah. it has all of those great components in place which iron man does it has tony and pepper 
um, and it has it has the the general tone absolutely nailed, and you're just like, okay, just tell a good story with those components already in place. So you've got X two, the Dark Knight, Spider Man two are the ones that you mentioned in that review, and this this has, I would argue, all those core components still in place. The tone is there, the star is there, everything that you expect to get from this film you get from it in terms of what you got from the first film, except what you don't have is as good a story. Uh, and and because... It, so in, in, in essence, what it ends up being is a, a fun two hours of spending time with that character that you have already bought into, but the disappointment is there because, yeah, you're right, it's not, it's not the first Iron Man film, and you expect a film to build on that rather than to coast on that. And I think that what this movie does is coast. It almost feels like everything that is achieved in this movie plot-wise is that Tony finds a way to stop his um, arc reactor from killing him. Could be something that Tony's, like, <laughs> fixing at the start of the next film. Like, oh, good. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, at the start of Iron Man 2, we see that Tony's chesting has been causing him trouble and we see him overcome that in the first act. And then he takes on a really cool villain. And this film doesn't have that really cool villain, or at least it does, and it doesn't know how to use him, so it uses Mickey Rock instead. <laughs> and and how how miscast is Mickey Rock for, for your money? Do you, do, you, <sighs> well, like, we, do, you, do you lay any blame I, at him? No, I, I, I like his performance. It's just... I, I yeah. hate his performance. I was going to say, like, I can't, I I can't really get on board it. with it. There's no, there's no part of it that works for me. I'd like to compare it to Nicolas Cage, who um, we've mentioned a couple of times in this podcast, uh, in you know, Kick-Ass and Ghost Rider, <laughs> doing these massively quirky things with his characters, but that lead back to the character and inform the character in some way. And you know, Nick Cage has actually thought through why he's being bonkers. Mickey Rourke is like, should I have a bird? I think I should have a bird. Okay, um, <laughs> you've got a bird now. And that is a thing that the movie gets made fun of for. Like, generally, we were, t- we were chatting off air with Caroline um, <laughs> after we recorded our um, uh, Jessica Jones episode. And she was like, she, she was talking, to, she was saying how like she thinks the movie gets a bad rap and it's actually quite fun. But my God, when Mickey Rourke is always asking for his beard. Oh, I want my beard. Um, and she's, she's spot on. It's the movie deserves to be made fun of for that because it doesn't make any sense. And it's and Mickey Rourke. I mean, I, why? I mean, I get why conceptually on the paper he was Russian, and uh, but even then, the movie feels like kind of retrograde in its east-west politics. That this, you're right. Well, this that, character called like, Ivan from Russia turns up. It's kind of weird how. In the comics, there are a lot of Russian villains in Iron Man because it was a Cold War comic. Like, yeah. And they had sort of, I guess, originally, I wonder if they were going to use the Crimson Dynamo, being like another guy in an Iron Man suit from, mm. you know, from the East. But yeah, it, like... It definitely, it definitely wasn't uh, Justin Hammer to begin with. Yeah, like if it, if it was another that. villain, I would wager it was the Crimson Dynamo. Because that makes right. a lot of sense in terms of who you get to fight Iron Man Russian Iron Man. But didn't the first film do such a good idea, uh, do such a good job with transporting Iron Man to a modern political Well, it, well that's the thing. Like people he... think it's kind of unsubtle and imperialistic, but... 
Well, yeah, but then so it was Iron Man, you know. It felt, it felt modern and it felt grounded in a current, our current political Well, yeah, landscape. that's like in, in the Marvel Universe, in the comics, there's a kind of thing of the timeline slides around because obviously these characters can't be 40 years old, but no one mm. wants to watch a 90-year-old Iron Man. So I think originally it was... Viet, was it Vietnam, maybe, that he received his... I think originally it was... Or was it Korea? We yeah. definitely had this conversation yeah. on the first podcast. <laughs> the same confusion. <laughs> but yeah, like, you know, there are versions of the retelling where it's, where it's Iraq in, you know, in the 90s. So, like, you know, it kind of makes sense to slide him around whichever conflict is most timeline appropriate. And so this, this sort mm. of Russian thing kind of comes out of nowhere, really. Yeah, and it, it is not... It's not thematically relevant. No. And I mean, so Mickey Rourke got cast in this basically off the back of his performance <laughs> in The Wrestler. And like, I love The Wrestler. I think Mickey Rourke didn't win an Oscar for The Wrestler because they were scared he was going to drop F-bombs all over the stage in the Dolby <laughs> Theatre. Uh, because that is what he did when he accepted every single other award in that award season. It's <laughs> like a, a terrific performance. It's perfect in the way that... Sylvester Sloan can roll out and place Rocky and just be an actor that's unrecognisable from some of the other shit he does around it. <laughs> um, and uh, Stallone is capable of good performances mm-hmm. when he's not playing Rocky, but just not as many recently. Um, but, you know, probably two of his best performances in the past ten years. He's just it, perfect and, you know, you get this emotion and you got that from Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler. It was the perfect role for an actor at the perfect time whoever thought it was a good idea to take the guy who had just ram slammed his way into the ring at the end of that movie and go he should be the villain in a superhero movie bad 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 idea same guy who said Christoph Waltz you've just been Oscar nominated for Inglorious Bastards Green Hornet should we should we put you in the Green Hornet it's like it's like, like he's far from the only thing wrong with that film well yes but it just it just I, I, I feel like Mickey Rourke is a big problem with that this movie and I feel kind of bad for saying that I think if he was in it more, he might be a bigger problem, but in the same way as he doesn't get to have that much of an impact it would have been, positively, it would have been I don't great. think he gets to ruin it. Uh, I mean, how about you change the movie, like, so you go, okay, Whiplash does die at the Monaco GP, and we find out that the whole time he was actually being manipulated by Justin Hammer. Justin Hammer had fed him all this information about his dad having his plans stolen by... Stark, and that all he actually wanted was for Vanco to design new Iron Man esque tech for him. And by that point, he doesn't need to keep him in a lab and have him doing it. He's already done it. He just steals the tech mm-hmm. from Vanco's dead body, and then Justin Hammer is. I mean, and you could even say like Hammer's Hammer's I motivation think... is to destroy the Stark legacy because he wants you know he wants to occupy that space in history. Yes. Like it, it would I, make sense. We've just written a better film. We've just written. A <laughs> I think it film. would be. I think it would be even better if Whiplash gets killed at the Monaco Grand Prix, and then you discover that he was actually an actor from Croydon. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, so um, uh, that brings us to the end of our Iron Man two chat. Uh, lots of stuff we liked, but uh, just doesn't doesn't all fit together perfectly. Un- Unlike, I'm sure, the two comic book recommendations are going to be made to me right now, which I'm sure are going to be a whole heap of fun and they're going to be just thematically rich and it's all going to come together (laughs) in some fantastic central metaphor that really strikes home yeah there's some some great recommendations on our last podcast what have you what anything to live up to those two this week uh (laughs) okay actually 
because we because we haven't uh, haven't been on a podcast since that minisode, can I just express how pleased I am that you had the right reaction to Superman's <laughs> Secret Identity? Yes, uh, and actually, pretty much all the stuff you picked up on why it's good is the reasons why yeah. I think it's good. So you're not fired, <laughs> <laughs> James. James, slightly less less sure on, 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 no, on that. Assertion. I wouldn't say yeah, fired. I. I <laughs> I agree more with you on Kill Your Boyfriend than I do with James anyway. So. Ah, sick burn. Um, I remember on our Iron Man 1 podcast, you were saying that basically there weren't many good Iron Man stories and that you were recommending yeah. two of the best ones, even that it, they weren't directly relating <laughs> to the first film. I'm expecting zero to zero Iron Man recommendations here. Maybe even like just something where Iron Man cameos. It'll be like an Avengers comic or something, right? Yeah, well, you're not far off for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll we'll come to you next, uh, James, because I, I already I've already got the tease that Nova is involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seb, what, what's your recommendation? Um, I am actually going to recommend you an Iron Man comic, um, and it does have sort of relevance to this film as well. Um, so it's going to be issues. I'm afraid it's a nine issue block. It's issues ten through seventeen of. Um, the most recent Iron Man volume before the relaunch, which um, oh, you know, cool. before the recent relaunch. So I think it's Iron Man volume five. I am I am um, reading the relaunch at the moment and um, quite enjoying it. Oh, that's the the Bendis stuff is good fun because it's Bendis doing character stuff. So yeah, no no plot, but it's enjoyable. <laughs> Um, but the, so this is the previous volume to that, um, written by our friend Kieran Gillen, and yeah. some of it, but not all of this arc, is drawn by Dale Eaglesham. He was kind of the main artist for most of Gillen's run after Greg Land, who everybody hates, <laughs> had left. Um, so this is yeah issues ten through seventeen. The storyline is called the Secret Origin of Tony Stark. Um, so it is, I mean, some but not all of it is flashback stuff with Howard and Maria Stark. So that's the relevance to Iron Man 2, really, is it's stuff about Tony's background and about Howard Stark. And Howard Stark really hasn't been in comics very much, so this is actually quite novel for a comic to go back and do. And I think this is a take on Howard and on um, Tony that is quite heavily influenced by the movies. Like I, I don't think you would have got this comic before Dominic Cooper's Howard Stark existed. So... The thing is, it's quite a long story and it's taking in quite a lot. So there is sort of, there's um, kind of heist caper elements set in flashback. There's also big, heavy sci-fi stuff set in the present day with Tony. Um, There's the introduction of a character who is a very Kieran Gillen kind of character um, to the extent that he almost exactly resembles a previous Kieran (laughs) character from his X-Men run to the extent that you think, was it supposed to originally be him and then somebody at editorial said, you can't use that character (laughs) again. Um, And the, the story culminates with a massive retcon twist revelation concerning tony um so it's 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 interesting i i think it's the the high point of kieran's run like kieran's run on iron man isn't my favorite stuff that he's done but i do think it's in the better end of the stuff that he did like the superhero stuff that he did at marvel um and this is this is i mean it's long and some of it maybe drags a little bit but um i think there's really good stuff in it so um see what you reckon uh james what what's uh what's your comic book recommendation this week so I, I, try, I did try very hard to think of an Iron Man story I could recommend. <laughs> but, I, I mean, was just teasing. Like the, the two obvious ones are like Armor Wars, which is a thing where he, Tony Stark decides he wants to collect all his tech 
uh, of people who are misusing it and get it back. And like that's got some thematic relevance with this movie, but not a huge amount. And it's kind of because it's from like it's a very eighties comic and it hasn't aged well. Like unlike the sixties stuff, it just you know it doesn't work as as blocks. You have to read it as single issues monthly. Um, and the other one is Demon in a Bottle, which is the famous one, but again, same problem. The one that you decided not to recommend on the last podcast. Yeah, like, if, you know, if you care, you'll get to it. But when I got to it, I was hugely disappointed. So, I, you know, I can't in good conscience say, oh, read this, because it's just, it doesn't work. It, you know, it, mm. it needs to be redone, really, with more modern sensibilities. Uh, so... <laughs> with all that, with all that in mind... In mind. What I am recommending is <laughs> Secret Avengers issues one to four of the 2010 series, which are by uh, Ed Brubaker and Mike Diodato Jr. And they're about, like, Iron Man isn't in them, but War Machine <laughs> and Black Widow are in them. And, oh, okay. and that is my link uh-huh. to this film. Like, I think it's, a, it's about a little Avengers team who run covert operations... And essentially, I just thought it would be nice if you saw those characters in action in a story that wasn't focused on Iron Man. So, you know, that's that's why you're reading it. Um, if you want to, the fifth issue is also a continuation of that story. But it's a kind of standalone flashback that fills in some of the backstory. You don't have to read it. Um, and given that, Seb's, <laughs> given that Seb's recommended you a nine-issue story, maybe you want to stick to the first four. But yeah, so and obviously Nova's part of that team, and also the other one of the other Ant Men is part of that team. Ooh. So you know, there's a lot in it that I think will interest you in terms of uh, getting to know the wider Marvel universe. Cool. Okay, so that's that's uh, Secret Avengers. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, great. We'll move on now to our final section, which is the pitch. Okay, um, and so I mean, after what you know, we've we're now two Iron Man films down after three uh, out of three, and um, we've had Iron Monger and Whiplash as our villains. Now, I have been disappointed with both of those villains. I am sure that they're whether it's an Iron Man villain or whether it's a villain from somewhere else in the Marvel universe or whether there is someone that you can make up yourself. There has to be someone more interesting for Tony Stark to fight in an Iron Man movie. So I want you to pitch me... Just choose a villain for your dream Iron Man movie. Um, and James, we'll come, to, we'll come back to you first. You'll be happy to hear I've got a proper answer this week. <laughs> and not only that... And those are few and far between. <laughs> I'm very confident that I'm going to win this week. Oh. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want you to get prejudiced against me for that confidence. But... My ideal Iron Man villain is a character who isn't technically an Iron Man villain. He's from a completely different Marvel franchise. But if you say what I think you're going to say, you should everything about the character means he should be an Iron Man villain, and that is Doctor Doom. I thought you were going to say Doctor yes. Doom. Yes, go, go on. Oh, I didn't. Because so Doctor right. Doom, well, right. Doctor Doom is a he's character. Got the, he's who, got the metal mask. Yeah, he created his own suit of armor, but. Where, where Tony Stark is a guy who worships technology, Doctor Doom has this side to him where he dabbles in sort of mysticism. And I like the idea of the, the hero who is sort of a technological ideal coming up against something that he doesn't understand, which is magic. 
And I imagine they'll get to this in the MCU at some point. Because, you know, inevitably Doctor Strange will be mingling with Iron Man. And they're going to, you know, they've already done a bit of it with Thor, but, you know, they kind of fudged that in in saying Thor's magic is just advanced technology. But Doctor Strange's magic is going to be magic. And, yeah, that, you know, that interplay between the guy who understands everything meeting something he can't understand and the evil version of himself with a kind of, you know... Basically, everything about Doctor Doom says he should have been an Iron Man villain when he was made. Okay, um, Seb, can you do better than Doctor Doom? I probably can't, and I would like to apologise to James for underestimating him because I thought for a moment he was going to say Norman Osborn, <laughs> and anyone who thinks that Norman Osborn should be an Iron Man villain, as Marvel seemed <laughs> to think in the last few years of the 2000s, um, deserves never to be allowed near yeah. comics again because Norman Osborn is not an Iron Man <laughs> villain, and thankfully that has been consigned. It's certainly no now. longer. Yeah. Um, so no, I I would like to suggest that uh, my villain would be the Scarecrow, um, and I know that that may surprise you because you're the thinking, actual what, DC the Scarecrow, or is there well, the, as the, the, I'm the, predicting probably a Marvel character <laughs> with the same name? Well, this is the thing. As you know, there is a villain in DC Comics called the Scarecrow, and you've read some comics with him in, and we've seen a film with him in, and he's he's pretty great. He's you know he's this. Um, professor who who specialises in fear and and has a lot of interesting psychological background. Addresses as scarecrow and has this special fear gas that terrifies the shit out of people. I can hear you googling him. Don't google him. It's not. I can it's hear not your me. keyboard. <laughs> um, you know, he's a fantastic villain. Wouldn't he be great? Unfortunately, Marvel also has a character called the Scarecrow. But rather than having any of the stuff that makes DC Scarecrow interesting, I mean, he is a Scarecrow. But I'll, I'll quote you from Wikipedia. <laughs> He's a highly apted contortionist and is extremely flexible and agile. He's double-jointed and can fit his body through any aperture at least one foot wide. Uh, He's a a master at training birds, and he often carries a pitchfork as a weapon. Um, So... You know, it's like, I just like the idea of having a villain called the Scarecrow and everyone thinks, oh no, it's that guy who's going to terrify us with fear gas. And it's like, no, it's just a contortionist dressed as a Scarecrow. (laughs) Also, my, my favourite fact from from the Wikipedia page for Marvel's version of the Scarecrow is uh, in the Amalgam universe, which was a fun thing that Marvel and DC did in the 90s where they merged characters. In the Amalgam universe, Scarecrow was a combination of Marvel's Scarecrow and DC's Scarecrow. <laughs> oh, great work, comics. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, th- this is it's, it's going to be fairly obvious because we've got one <laughs> one <laughs> one serious answer Finally. and one non-serious. <laughs> um, James. Yeah. Um, I I really like the sound of that. But yeah. Okay. So so yeah. The long story short, uh, James wins the pitch <laughs> this week, um, and that's um, that's kind of going to be our last proper pitch of um, of uh, twenty fifteen. Uh, it might be. Um, we're going to be coming back with a mini sound next week, then um, a two-part Christmas special. Um, so you know we're not going to disappear, and then um, we'll be back straight away in the new year with um, a, a very exciting film that um, has been highly anticipated on this podcast. <laughs> but you'll have to wait to find out what that is. Um, if you are enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. 
And if you've already subscribed, then please leave us a rating or review and we'll give you a shout out on a future show. Uh, tell you what, if you leave us a very special Christmassy rating, that would seem perfect for a Christmas show. Shout out. Um, <laughs> you can find more episodes of Cinematic Universe on cinematicuniverse.libsyn.com or as we're a Film Divider podcast at filmdivider.com. You can get in touch via Facebook, on Twitter, at CU underscore podcast, or send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. See you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. I want the Turbo Man action figure with the arms and legs that move and the boomerang shooter and his rock and roller jetpack and the realistic voice activator that says five different phrases, including, it's turbo time. Accessories sold separately, batteries not included. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks time with a Christmas special, Jingle All The Way. No, just kidding. We'll be closing out the year with a two-part Christmas special, which is going to be a really fun Cinematic Universe award show. And then we'll return in 2016. See you then. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.